to Psalm 8. We have finished Daniel, and uh, hopefully you know Daniel a little bit better now than you did a few months ago. I must say I really enjoyed preaching through Daniel. The, uh, and uh, preaching this week from Psalm 8, and uh, Rich Coffin is going to preach next week on what the Bible says about the current economic crisis. So if you're interested in that, uh, that should be exciting. And then we're going to start a series on First and Second Corinthians at the beginning of our Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, at the beginning of uh, May, and that'll take us through the summer. So that'll be uh, exciting. Chris, welcome home. So I see Chris is home. That's good news, and you're looking for a job. So we need to be praying for you. We will do that. It's good to see you. So it's a little bit of a disadvantage because I just saw Chris a couple of weeks ago and had a lovely dinner at an amazing Italian restaurant. And, uh, but I'll tell you about that some other time. Let's go to God's Word, to Psalm 8, and let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we've come to your Word again this morning, and we find that you are an awesome and amazing God whose works go beyond our understanding. So, Lord, we ask this morning to once again open our eyes to see your glory. Do this for each of us, in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. In the beginning of his excellent book, Designed for Dignity, uh, Richard Pratt, who's an Old Testament professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, he tells a story, and I just wanted to share that story with you. He says, uh, a few years ago, I came across a newspaper article entitled The Irony of Being Human. This is probably about 20 years ago from now. And the column in this article reported two events that have haunted me to this day. In the first story, a young woman was sitting alone in her hotel room. She had left her husband and her two children to live with another man, but that evening, her new partner had deserted her. Everything was lost. Her husband, her children, and now her lover. And so in utter despair, she shoved the barrel of a 38 caliber pistol into her mouth and pulled the trigger. The police found a desperate note on her nightstand. Don't cry for me, the wrinkled paper said. I'm not even human anymore. Another event occurred that same evening in the same hotel. Just a few uh, floors below, the advocates of the New Age movement had gathered in the convention center there at this hotel. And after several rousing talks, a well-known celebrity led the crowd in the unison chant, I am God, I am God, I am God. And the irony of being human, the article concluded, is that people in the same time and same place can have such contradictory views of themselves. And the columnist was right. These two events illustrate fairly dramatically one of the greatest ironies of human existence. We don't know what to think of ourselves. Some of us feel so worthless that we can hardly stand to live another minute. And others are so full of self-importance, they lift hands in praise of their own divinity. One says, I am nothing. And the other says, I am God. Which is true? What does it mean to be human? 
We find it hard to keep a balanced self-image. Can we have the confidence in our value without falling into arrogance? And can we be humble without losing all sense of dignity? And the only way to find a balanced self-image is to turn to the revelation of the one who made us. And so we have to look at ourselves in the mirror of Scripture. In the opening chapter of the Bible, God put a label on the human race. If we look carefully at that label, we can learn a lot about ourselves. Moses recorded God's first words about humanity in this way, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In the very beginning, our creator gave us a remarkable label. He called us the image of God. This label, the image of God, highlights both sides of our human existence, our humility and our dignity. We are humble images of God. But we're also dignified images of God. And for the most part, that's the simple answer to the profound question that's asked in Psalm 8, which is our text for this morning. And that question is, what is man? What is man? Turn with me to Psalm 8. A Psalm of David. And there are, this is an amazing psalm. It's very short. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Derek Kidner, in his excellent two-volume study of the Psalms, he writes that this is probably the most beautiful, best-written psalm in the Bible, which if you compare with Psalm 23, is very high praise. He says, this psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory of gra and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he has done, and relating us and our world to him, all with a masterly economy of words and a spirit of mingled joy and awe. So, Bonnie, you should use this psalm in your literature classes, teach people how to write. <clears throat> and he rightly adds, the range of thought takes us not only above the heavens and back to the beginning of creation, but as the New Testament points out, on to the very end. The psalm's theme is the glory and greatness of God and the place of man within God's creation. And the psalm starts off by letting us know that the glory of God can be seen. 
The glory of God can be seen. The most striking feature of Psalm 8 and its dominant theme, if we just counted verses, is its description of man and his place in the created order. But the psalm doesn't begin by talking about man. It begins with a celebration of the surpassing majesty of God. And this places men and women under the sovereignty and under the authority of God. And it's a way of saying that we will never understand human beings unless we see them as God's creatures and recognize that they have special responsibilities to their creator. Our responsibility, or our first responsibility, certainly one major responsibility that we have is to praise God. And that's how David starts in the psalm. In fact, he starts praising God in a grand fashion. He begins the psalm with the great name of God, Yahweh. That part that's translated, O Lord, our Lord, is in the Hebrew, Yahweh Adonai. And Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. Yahweh is God's personal name. And we translate it, O Lord, our Lord. With most translations, the first Lord is written in small caps. That's sort of an English thing. It's not really uh, that way in the text. But it signifies, some versions do this, to signify it's the English translation of Yahweh. And so if your Bible has it in small caps, it's just a clue to say, that's not translating the word for Lord, Adonai, it's translating the word Yahweh, God's name that we get from Exodus 3 and Exodus 6. So when you see Lord spelled with regular type, it's a translation of the Hebrew word Lord, which is Adonai. Now some of the newer versions have abandoned that. Um, I wish they didn't, but they have because they're trying not to add in things. Um, And it's funny because in Later Jewish history, the Jewish people considered the name of God so sacred that they wouldn't pronounce it. Out of fear of violating the commandment of taking God's name in vain, they decided they wouldn't say it at all, ever. And so when the Masoretes came along, and they're the ones that added the vowels to the Hebrew language, um, the written language, they used a series of dots and dashes under the consonants to tell you what the vowels should be. But when they got to that word, Yahweh, they knew you weren't supposed to say Yahweh, so they put in the vowels for Adonai. And so when you're reading along, you would see the vowels for Adonai and be reminded to say Adonai instead of Yahweh, and thus you wouldn't violate the commandment. They were really good at all the legalistic stuff, you know. They specialized in that. However, they neglected to tell the first English translators about this little trick, and uh, so they translated the way they saw it there um, in the text, and they came up with the word Jehovah, which is really a, a made-up nonsense word being composed of the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai. And so it got a new word, which the Masoretes wouldn't have any idea what that is. They never heard of that word. But there's none of that legalism, none of that belabored piety for David. When he's writing this psalm, Yahweh is his God. So he begins with that name, maintaining that Yahweh is so majestic, his glory is so great, that it is, he says, above the heavens. 
And as David's son, Solomon, would say when he dedicated the first temple in 1 Kings, he said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Good verse for us to remember as we begin talking about facilities. The reason that creation, as wonderful as it is, cannot fully explain, contain, or exhaust the glory of God is that God is its maker. And while creation expresses the glory of God, it's only a partial revelation of the surpassingly greater God who stands behind it. And so if God has set his glory above the heavens, then certainly nothing under the heavens can praise him enough or adequately. And yet that's exactly what we have the privilege of doing. And according to verse 2, even children and infants can and do praise God. We often hear that on Sunday, our young children and infants, praising God. You thought it was crying, but it's not. It's just praising God. Psalm 8 is quoted numerous times in the New Testament and on one occasion by Christ himself. If you remember the occasion, it was on Palm Sunday. He had entered Jerusalem in triumph, and he came into the temple area, and he started healing the blind and the lame, and the children continued to praise him, and they were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And then we read Matthew 21. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? From Psalm 8. And by identifying the praise of children in Psalm 8, Jesus not only validates their words, he interprets their words not just as praise of mere man, but of God. Since Psalm 8 says that God has ordained praise for himself out of the mouths of children. But the bulk of Psalm 8, while it's about the glory of God, the bulk of it's actually written about man. And why is that? Simply because the glory of God can be seen in his creating of man. Verses 3 and 4, in his creating of man. And hopefully that's the first blank there in your outline. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And the first thing that's asserted about man is his insignificance in the vast framework of creation. When David thinks of the glory of God exceeding the greatness of creation, and then he sees himself as just a small, tiny part of that creation, he's struck by just how small he really is in comparison. I mean, think about it. Got to put your science caps on here for a minute. The earth rotates on its axis once every 23 hours, 56 uh, minutes, and 4.1 seconds based on the solar year. Point on the equator therefore rotates at a rate of a little more than 1,000 miles per hour. And at a point on the Earth at the latitude of Portland, Oregon, which is 45 degrees north, rotates at 667 miles per hour. The Earth and its satellite, the Moon, also move together in an elliptical orbit around the Sun. 
the uh, eccentricity of the orbit is very slight, so the orbit is virtually a circle. And the approximate length of the Earth's orbit is 583 uh, million miles, roughly, you know, give or take a few hundred thousand miles. And the Earth travels along it at a velocity of about 66,000 miles per hour. You thought I drove fast. The entire solar system, including the Earth, is moving through space at a rate of approximately 12.5 miles per second, or 45,000 miles per hour toward the constellation of Hercules. The Milky Way galaxy as a whole, however, is moving toward the constellation Leo at about 375 miles per second. The Milky Way is a large disc-shaped aggregation of stars. I copied all this down. I don't know any of this stuff whose center is about 25,000 light years from the sun. A light year is the distance light travels in a year, or about 5.88 trillion miles. And that, it includes the sun and its solar system. In addition to the sun, the Milky Way contains about 400 billion other stars. And there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies in the universe, some of which are much larger and contain many more stars than the Milky Way. Hundreds of billions of galaxies containing hundreds of billions of stars, and yet Psalm 147 says, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. And Isaiah 40 says, look up into the heavens, who created all the stars. He brings them out one after the other, calling each by its name, and he counts them to see that none are lost or have strayed away. He created each of those stars, and he placed them in a universe, uh, sort of as a farmer sows seed, and he calls each by name. He is Yahweh Adonai, the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth, and all that is in them. And now can you understand how David can say, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? That you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. I mean, if you really think about it, it's amazing that the glory of God is seen in the creation of man. <coughs> But it doesn't stop there because the glory of God can be seen in his crowning of man. In his crowning of man, verse 5. It says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The verse simply says that God crowned man with glory and honor. And this means just as he, that he has given people... Uh, Men and women like you and me, as we have just seen, who are mere specks in this vast universe, he's given us a significance and an honor above everything else that he has created. And David makes this point in two striking ways. <clears throat> First, he uses the word glory, which he had just used for God, except now he's using it for man. It's an effective way of identifying man with God, saying that he's been made in God's image and he reflects uh, God's glory in a way that no other parts of the creation reflect God's glory. 
And it's interesting because in verse 4, it said God made man lower than the heavenly beings. Some versions say angels because it's used that way in the New Testament. But here in the Old Testament, uh, it says heavenly beings because it uses the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the plural name for God. And man has been placed below God and temporarily below the angels, according to Hebrews 2, which was our responsive reading this morning, but above the animals, as we see in verses 7 and 8. And I think the real point here is that David, like Moses did in Genesis, is connecting men and women to God in whose image they are made. And the second way that David emphasizes man's special significance is by speaking of his role as ruler over the rest of the world. And he does this because the glory of God can be seen in his commissioning of man, in his commissioning of man. Verses 6 through 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And again, this is significant because David has taken a word normally used to describe God and applied it to man. God is the real ruler, 1 Timothy 6. God, the blessed and only ruler, king of kings and lord of lords. Some versions say the only sovereign. But now David in Psalm 8 says God shares this rule with man. Makes him ruler over creation, particularly with respect to all other living things. And then all other living uh, uh, creatures. He talks about cattle, beasts, birds, and fish. And man has taken this commissioning uh, on himself, um, somewhat with a vengeance. We have subdued the earth beyond all recognition. At some point in the antiquity, man took a round stone, stuck a stake through it, sat his wife on top of it, and the first SUV was born. Man began to build roads and bridges and dams and houses and cities and ships and cars. And he explored the wilderness and discovered coal and oil and iron and salt. And he made contact lenses and laser beams and high-definition televisions and thermonuclear weapons. Found cures for polio and TB and open hearts and transplanted kidneys and made music and painted pictures. In fact, man has subdued just about everything in the world except for the one thing that was most important. He has never subdued himself. And therein lies the root of the human dilemma. We like the idea of rule and dominion, but we only have it as it's given to us by the ultimate ruler, the one who has all dominion, power, and authority, the sovereign God, Yahweh Adonai. He gets the glory. And so we see in verse 9, the glory is not man's. Is not man's. Verse 9, we have the glory of God in man, not the glory of man. Any glory we have is reflected glory. The glory is God's alone. But we want it. We want the glory. And although we're made in God's image and ordained to rule under his authority, men and women have increasingly turned their backs on God. And since we won't look upwards towards God, which is both our privilege and duty, we wind up looking downward toward the beasts and so becoming increasingly like them. 
Does anyone really doubt that people today are becoming more like the animals than we are becoming more like Christ? You only have to read one day's newspaper to get a list of all the horror stories of man's behavior. And it's becoming so common, we don't even see it or react to it anymore. Oh, look, another tragedy somewhere. A whole bunch of people died. What's for supper? I mean, that's how we deal with it. We don't even notice horror anymore. You know, the classic example of this, which we learned in Daniel, is King Nebuchadnezzar, our good friend from Babylon, which we just studied in the book of Daniel. You remember, he turned his back on God despite having been warned by Daniel, and he looked out over his empire and spoke against God by exalting himself back in Daniel 4. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? It's a classic statement of secular humanism, describing creation and dominion as of man, by man, and for man's glory. God need not apply. But God hears our blasphemy. And if we pick up and Daniel 4, verse 31, it says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. That's usually a bad sign. Okay, if you're exalting yourself and then you hear a voice from heaven, the only thing I can say is just repent as fast as possible. Probably lying down face in the dirt would be a good idea. He says... O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws." And Nebuchadnezzar went insane because it's insanity to take the glory of God for yourself, putting yourself in the place of God. Many people today think Western civilization is going crazy because it's eliminated God from its collective conscience. And we do things the animals wouldn't even dream of. And Romans 1 makes that clear. You know, it's very hard for me to quote this passage from Romans 1 because when I preached on it, it was a number of years ago we went through the book of Romans. When I preached this passage, there was someone who got up and walked out because they didn't like what this said. Hopefully they didn't like what I said. You know, I don't really know. But I was trying to hammer this home and they walked out on me. Romans 1, 19 through 25. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
Go outside, you see evidence of God. That's what that's saying. Anytime you look at any created thing, you see evidence of God. And then it goes on. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And no one has an excuse, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you believe that, don't you? If I asked each one of you a question this morning, was this past week, was last week a good week or a bad week? Probably get mixed responses. Some of you would say it was a great week. Some of you would say it's a terrible week. But let me ask you another question. How did you decide how to answer? How do you decide what to say to that question? Because whether we realize it or not, we answer that question with only one thought in mind. Last week was good if it was good for me. And it was bad if it was bad for me. Step back and take another look at last week. It may have been good for you, but it wasn't good for the parents who were spending every night by their daughter's deathbed. Or for the young person who was suffering from leukemia, he didn't have a good week. It wasn't positive for your Christian brothers and sisters suffering persecution in Africa and Asia and the Middle East. And yet when evaluating last week, we ignore what happens to others and we simply consider what happened in our own lives. And we all live as if the whole world revolved around us. And as a result of the fall, we have a deadly preoccupation with ourselves. We are self-aware and self-focused and self-conscious and self-made and self-protecting and self-promoting and self-centered and just plain old selfish. And yet from my experience, self does not go quietly. Instead, it stubbornly rears its head and demands its way, looking for any opportunity to stand in the limelight and receive the glory. If left unchecked, self will stand in the light of God and somehow try to take credit for it. So what does God do? He has made us to reflect his glory and exercise his dominion. And we've tried to grab it all for ourselves. Well, we know what God does because he's already done it. And so we can see the glory of God in the man. Glory of God in the man, not any man, but the man. God sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us from our willful ignorance and rebellion and to fulfill Psalm 8 as we have not. Hebrews chapter 1, I talked to Rich the other day, and he says, oh, when we were going through Hebrews in the adult Sunday school class, I really wanted to get into this. You are going to mention this, right? And I said, oh, yeah, okay. Hebrews 1 says, talking about Jesus, 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then in Hebrews 2, our responsive reading this morning, we read again, quoting directly from Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere. I love that. I don't remember what the passage was, but somewhere in the Bible it says, this is like my life verse, okay? Somewhere the Bible says, but I can't remember the reference. And uh, so this is easily one of my favorite verses because it reminds me so much of me, just that part. It's been testified somewhere. Then he quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's true. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. The writer of Hebrews has taken Psalm 8 and applying it directly to Jesus Christ. It says, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Have you ever put that, those words to Jesus? We got to taste the death for everyone, but it says, by the grace of God he tasted death for everyone. We don't usually put the crucifixion in the category grace of God. But that's what it says. And it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Conversion to Christ is nothing less than getting over ourselves. That's why there's more than a subtle change that must happen at the foot of the cross. A death takes place there. For Christianity, it's not about self-help. It's about self-death. New life begins when we abandon me and we fall on the mercy of God who loved us in spite of ourselves and a Christ who gave himself in our place. And in that moment, we embrace freedom from the perpetual doom of the flesh and we take up the cause of living solely for the one who frees us. And that's why, as Mark uh, prayed earlier, when we pray for someone in sin, we pray that they would be brought to the foot of the cross, that sin needs to die, and they need to be freed. And such is the way of the Savior, calling anyone who would be a recipient of new life to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And this is the Son of Man. Don't ignore the salvation that is offered through Christ. He hung on a cross as salvation for those who repent and believe in him. He stands where we should have stood. He serves where we should have served. He worships as we should have worshiped. Jesus always lived under God's rule. We don't. He did. It's not a plea for humility. It's a plea for Christ because humility is found in Christ. And when you persist in your sins, that's independence. When you attempt to live life without the Holy Spirit or without prayer, that's independence. 
when you attempt to satisfy yourself with anything but Christ, that's independence. And only clothed in the righteousness of Christ can we find dependence on God. And so we close this thought with Hebrews 3, 1. So we've talked about Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. So you can tell Rich when he comes back next week that Hebrews was big here for him. Rich would say, huh. <laughs> Hebrews 3, 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The NIV says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And what happens when we do that? The answer is obvious. When we look to Jesus, we're looking up again by the grace of God. And the grace of God which has saved us and redirected our affections now begins the work once again of conforming us to the image of his son, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so we end today's message where we started with Psalm 8, where David himself ended it, crying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen and amen. Think about that. You need to pray and take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great psalm of David by which you have taught us about real glory and reflected glory. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus who is crowned with glory and honor and remind us that we're to live sola dea gloria, to the glory of God alone. Enable us to live that way, we ask, in the name of Jesus who lives and reigns and is coming again. Amen. Amen.